Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Parasite, and I am happy to be joined by Ben Lubin to talk about this one. Ben, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. I feel like we've been slipping up uh, between this and Ad Astra. You've had me on for some movies people might have actually seen. Well, there's that, but also I feel like you mentioned Ad Astra, and I was going to say I, I kind of dubbed you space movie correspondent after that, but then you made the point that that means I would have to invite you for Star Wars, and then I'd probably alienate a large portion of my audience if you came on and shit on the biggest movie of the year. So I think we could just call you now South Korean movie correspondent, and you can just take that instead. Fair enough. <laughs> um, Parasite is the newest movie from Bong Joon-ho. A lot of you probably know him as the director of Snowpiercer and Okja, because those are big movies that uh, had largely American or English-speaking cast the last couple years but he's a very celebrated south korean filmmaker who has made other movies including memories of murder and the host and uh mother so uh he's very well known uh in south korea but just become a much bigger deal here over the last few years but parasite might be his first uh korean language film to really hit be a huge crossover hit because it's just been uh really blowing up the box office recently here in america and breaking all sorts of per screen averages as it kind of slowly rolls out across the country uh ben and i want to offer the little disclaimer first though that uh we both really like this movie but it can also be kind of difficult to talk about without getting into some key plot points and it seems like a lot of people that are going in not knowing anything about the movie are really enjoying doing it that way so if you don't care about spoilers at all and which occasionally i talk to someone that just doesn't and they'll listen to the podcast and they'll go see a movie feel free to do that but we're not going to do a separate spoil section of this podcast so uh, i would just sign off now if you don't want to hear any plot details but uh ben you want to second that it's a really good movie and people should see it before we tell them to go away yeah, I mean, I basically I came into this movie knowing as little as possible, and that's really how I would recommend going about it. I, I think it's fantastic. I think Khan got it totally right this year. It deserved to win the Palme d'Or. It's one of the best Palme d'Or winners of the 21st century. It's just an incredible, smart, impeccably made, nuanced, and kind of deliciously biting movie. So really recommend going to see it. Just... See it, see it, see it. Yeah, Ben summed up my feelings pretty well as well. It's a pretty great movie. And uh, sign off now if you don't want any plot details because we're going to get into it. So Parasite follows uh, the story of the Kim family who are living in poverty in Seoul and basically struggling to make ends meet. They're doing odd jobs. And uh, the the, the patriarch of the family is uh, Kim Ki-tak, who is played by Song Kang-ho, a great South Korean actor who is kind of Bong Joon-ho's muse. Uh, his wife is Park Chung-suk. His son is Kim Ki-woo. And his uh, daughter is Kim Ki-young. We're probably not going to be able to eloquently talk about this movie if we keep trying to say those names over and over again. But I think you'll get the gist of who they were. His son, who they, they end up referring to as Kevin for some reason throughout the movie. I don't really remember how they got to that either. But that's a, that's a thing that happens. But the son uh, has a friend that is uh, more highly educated and uh, has been tutoring uh, the daughter of a, of a very well-off family. And he's going off to school and uh, because he really uh, has romantic feelings for a 16-year-old girl, which is uh, okay, whatever, uh, decides he wants his non-threatening friend to be the one to take over the tutoring of her. So, can- so, so, so just quick interruption yes. there. Specific, like specifically, it's not just that he's the non-threatening friend; it's that he's the non-college educated lower class friend. It's a very good point. So he wants uh, his wants his uh, non-college educated lower class, not as threatening friend to pretend to be highly educated and take over the job of tutoring this girl he has a crush on before she's actually of an appropriate age to ask out. And so Kim Ki Woo uh, goes and meets the Park family, and he's going to. Uh, tutor their daughter Park Da Hai, but he kind of sees this very well-off family that has a lot of, that is maybe, uh, enjoys solving their problems with money. And so he gets, has the opportunity to get his sister a job as an art teacher for their younger son, who is a little different and, but maybe also artistically inclined, uh, because the matriarch of the Park family, who is, uh, Choi Young-gyo, again, sorry if I'm getting that name wrong, uh, she ends up, uh, wanting to hire the, uh, Kim daughter to be the art teacher, because, hey, her son's just an artistic genius and really needs someone to bring out his talents, which this is a funny movie. We should, we also didn't say that before we told the people that hadn't been spoiled to go away. I mean, you might just know Bong Joon-ho's work and hear a little bit about this movie and think, oh, that sounds cool, but not think it's funny, but it's actually really funny. And I probably laughed the most out of uh, the, the Park mother uh, just extolling the virtues of her son's artistic ability. Got a real kick out of oh, yeah. it. It, it is an insanely funny movie. It's, it's like a very particularly biting humor that is oftentimes incredibly uncomfortable. 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I it, it's incredibly funny and incredibly witty i would say yes so they don't they don't stop there uh the park daughter uh, or uh, or the kim daughter ends up getting the family's driver fired so they can get uh kitak a job as a driver because he's worked as a driver before and then the housekeeper for the park family has been with that house since before they even owned it it was uh designed by a famous architect and he who and she worked for him and then he moved and uh she kind of came with the house when the park family bought it but uh, they go about kind of removing her from her position as well, so they can get the mother a job as well. And uh, they are—they're all therefore are all gainfully employed and can live happily ever after. But this is a movie, so things have to happen, and it's not quite that simple. And uh, in fact, I think it's funny that we happen to be talking about this movie, Ben, because it's funny. We last year, uh, almost around this time, we talked about a, another South Korean movie called Burning, which I think we really talked a lot about just how much of the value of that movie and how great it was, largely because of how well it uh, just existed in its ambiguity. And I think you could say the same for this movie as well, because yes, a lot of Bong Joon Ho's films deal with. Uh, conflicts of class as does this one obviously you have this lower class family infiltrating this upper class family but it's not so simple as just being like capitalism is bad and these people are good and you can cheer for them and it's just really fun to think about just how Bong Joon-ho really plays with that ambiguity throughout the entire movie Uh, what about this movie resonated the most with you and and was that something that you thought about a lot as well yeah. So one one kind of pushback I, I would ha- like I would have to make I would say is I think the movie is pretty clearly in the capital and capitalism is bad camp. Fair. But the distinction is it's not people in the upper class are bad and it doesn't it's not kind of at the expense it's not it doesn't lionize anyone who is not in the upper class. It, basically, anyone operating within the structure of capitalism is effectively harmed by it and effectively perpetrating the neg- negative qualities of it. And that's something that I think is fairly unique and fairly well done about Bong Joon-ho's films. Like, if you look at Snowpiercer, spoilers for a, like, six-year-old movie at this point. Right. Um, one of the things that was so remarkable to me about the movie is that the villain of the movie is not Ed Harris's character. It's, Ed, like, Ed Harris's character and John Hurt's character are equally as responsible for, for kind of holding up this system, that the people kind of maintaining this system, the structure that is so innately damaging to like to all of these people. There are people in every aspect of class structure doing, doing the work to maintain it. And I think that's something that I really like about Bong Joon-ho's films. And it's, it's something that I think is a problem I have in a certain trend of class conscious films that are solely about kind of let's turn the exploited into these, larger than life, perfect, flawless, almost inhumanly virtuous heroes to show how they like show how they've been oppressed without showing the larger structures that they actually inhabit. And and something that I, I kind of thought back to a lot is the history of kind of political thought in Italian films. And I know this is kind of a weird connection to make for this. No, go for it. Take us to school. So if you kind of the, a movement that is kind of fairly well known in, in the history of Italian films, something called Italian neorealism which is something that kind of came about towards the end of World War II and was kind of the predominant kind of strain in art house Italian films for a good 10, 20 years. The the two films that most people are going to be familiar with are Rome, Open City, and Bicycle Thieves. Hey, at least I've seen one of those. Oh, wait, which one? Bicycle Thieves. At your, okay, rec- yeah, at your, yeah. at your recommendation. Right. I wasn't sure if you'd seen it. but yeah. um, So I, I love a lot of those films, but a problem they have, in, in my opinion, is they are pretty much solely about representing the exploitation of the lower class people in the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum and highlighting that by rendering them as these basically flawless, morally, perfectly virtuous beings. That's not really what people are. And Except some, you guys steal and, a bicycle and bicycle thieves. Yeah, but I mean, outside, like, if you actually look at like what that character is, everything he's doing is like solely to provide for yeah, his yeah, son. Yeah, yeah. He's he basically he's he's, he's, put, he's putting that situation. He's putting that bad situation by no, the large. He's a voice. Frank Capra character taken outside of the structure of a Frank Capra movie that basically makes everything end up okay. Hmm. But yeah, you um, you also don't see any rich people in Bicycle Thieves, really, do you? 
you see you see the evidence of rich people even if you don't see them on screen. Right. You basically see how the structure of basically the, the class structure within Italy has led to the main like the main character have to steal a bicycle. Yeah. But then slight slightly getting on a tangent there. But what I find more interesting is the shift in Italian film that happened in I would say the sixties and early seventies, as represented by one of my favorite filmmakers, a guy named Pier Paolo Pasolini, who was a devoted Marxist, um, incredibly class conscious, incredibly radical, and who dealt with a lot of the same issues as the neorealists did, except he didn't portray like the lower class as these kind of flawless, perfect, morally impeccable, inhuman beings. It He showed them as people. And there is something that I respect a lot more about that portrayal. They're, they're flawed, they're crude, they're occasionally vile, they're just as capable of morally wrong behavior as, as anyone else, because they're people. That's what people are. The cl- like the class structure that exists, it, like it, 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 it exists regardless. And I think that people there's there's a trend of filmmaking that kind of learned the wrong lesson from the neorealists and basically stuck to this idea that the way to make class conscious socially progressive filmmaking is to show the exploited as as so perfect and so flawless that we're meant to just kind of by like by like by into the understanding that well of yeah of course that like the situation is wrong because these like perfect like morally righteous beings are being oppressed but that's just not what people are and that doesn't really get to the core reality of of the world the way class structure works the way people work and i think real change and real change through art occurs through empathy and occurs through presenting people in the complexity that they actually, basically in all the complexity that they actually contain. Yeah, so my question then for be, for you would be, uh, what did you like about how Bong Joon-ho then wrote The Kim Family? So as, I guess, quote-unquote wrong as their actions are, because, I mean, they're con artists, they're, like, scamming this family for, for work, there is a genuine, real, and unignorable connection between these people. And I, I went to a Q&A screening of the movie with the, the director and the uh, the actress who played the daughter of, of the Kim family in person. Mm-hmm. And something that, like, she she maintained was that what made her really able to connect with the characters was the way that whatever else they did, whatever kind of horrible things they were doing, mm-hmm. when they got together and just had these moments of opening up to each other— there was real and genuine warmth between them. And it it was that kind of sh- like shred of empathy and that very honest connection that really helped her find the character. Hmm. And that's what helped me as an audience member find the humanity in these characters who were doing things that are kind of fairly hard to empathize with. Um, and I would say the other thing that really helped me kind of connect with these characters, and this is something that, I mean, if, if we're... Spoiler warning was at the beginning of the video, so we're okay with talking yeah. about. Is the way that the Park family, even as generous and magnanimous as they act throughout the movie, are so incredibly dismissive of the humanity of these people. There, there's almost kind of an unintentional sneering disregard, and it, it's like best exemplified this kind of recurring element of the smell. Mm-hmm. That there is just something about, like people of a lower socioeconomic class, there's just a smell. There's just a stink. Well, Um, it also bothers the park father the most when he's in the car with Kim Kim Ki-tak, where, you know, it's like when you're actually forced to, like, it's it's easy enough to be nice to these people when you're kind of just, like, in their general presence and you can talk to them from a distance, but then when you're, like, actually forced to, like, be close to them. He keeps talking about how he keeps almost crossing the line, and it's like, wow, it would be really bad if I had to really try and connect with one of these people or actually tell them anything interesting about my life. Or And yeah, sure, maybe there in general there is going to be like an employer-employee relationship, which is kind of understandable. You don't tell your boss everything. But at the same time, just the thought of like having the, even a normal, intimate moment with this guy really bothers him a lot. 
Yeah. It, it, it's something that it's, it's kind of a quietly really disturbing thing. And it's, it's like, like I said, one of the things I really love about uh, Bong Joon-ho's movies is that it's fairly unsparing towards everyone on every end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And we see kind of the way the existence of class and the existence of these kind of larger class superstructures damage these people on, on both sides of it. Like the, the Kim family, who are kind of con artists and who are like doing kind of the more actively, like obviously morally wrong things. And the Park family, who just are so unable to recognize on some level the humanity of people outside of their, their class. Yeah, and you don't— And there's just— there's there's just a and, and I think it, like the moment that was just kind of the gut punch to me was in the 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 party scene at the end where everything breaks down mm-hmm. when the Kim daughter has been stabbed and the the Park son is having his seizure right and the the the, the Park father asks the Kim father to throw him the keys as. Like, this man is trying to save the life of, of his daughter, who is, like, hemorrhaging on the ground. The fact that in that moment, the other father, he doesn't even register the, the girl's existence. And he basically—like, there, there was just something about that moment that was so horrifying to me. Yeah. Um, One, an interesting wrinkle to that scene is that he doesn't know that it's his daughter— but point? still, I mean, no, it, but, it's but it still does show disregard for that for for her life in general. Yes. Yeah, it, it's it's not that like he doesn't care about the man saving his own daughter's life. It's if you see someone like dying on the ground, even if they're not someone like you're related to or of your class, you should have the same reaction to at least register their existence and register the need that they're in. He doesn't even make right. I think the more damning thing on his character wasn't that he uh, asked for the keys; it was that he just expected. Uh, the the Kim father just to go drive like he's there tending to someone else's life. He he asked him to do the driving first before he says throw me the keys. He's like you should just leave that person dying on the ground and drive me yeah. right now where there's no one else tending to her. And then I mean then it gets worse after he throws the keys because then uh, they 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 end up near the uh, housekeeper's husband and you know that smell is revolting to him and that's what sets off yeah. the Kim father. So I mean this not a, not a good look at all for the for the Park father throughout that whole no. sequence. No. <laughs> yeah no but and I. I I thought just kind of the portrayal of class in the movie, it was incredibly complex, incredibly clever. And I mean, like the, the, the word I've used to describe the movie is ever since I saw it has basically been delicious. The movie is kind of delicious and it's kind of savage, biting, just kind of disturbing, but you can't look away, just kind of bite. I, I don't know. It's, it's. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I like, I think I think it probably is my favorite of his movies that, that I've seen now, and I mean I watch I rewatched Snowpiercer the other day, and I I, I like I said I watched Memories of Murder somewhat recently, and watched The Host last night, and I mean I like all of them too. I really like all of them, but I feel like this one there, there's there's not a moment that just doesn't feel essential to me that I feel like I'm just really getting something out of, and I, I, I delicious is a good adjective just to describe that feeling where it's like every single second of it I feel like is just it, it's giving me some kind of I don't want to say dopamine hit, but I was like give me more, give me. More, give me yeah, more. it's it's just it's a feast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's actually probably my favorite of his too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in terms of Snowpiercer, which is I think, in terms of kind of the political messaging, probably in some ways the closest closest to this movie, it feels a lot less didactic than Snowpiercer. Like at times, Snowpiercer could kind of hit you over the head a little too much with kind of this is the message of the movie. This is what this is about. And I think. Not, not that I didn't like Snowpiercer. I, I, I liked it a lot. But I think Parasite um, manages to kind of cover the same the same kind of thematic and political material, but in a more complex, richer, and ultimately more meaningful way. Yeah, I, do. I think it's just a more interesting take on the on the one percent i mean it's like yeah. it's, it's just so it's it's so obvious what they're doing in snowpiercer where it's like yeah these people are living in like luxurious train cars these people are living in squalor and eating like 
blocks made out of roaches and these people are eating steak and chicken and like real people and it's like all right we we kind of get it but you're going to keep showing that to us in different ways whereas here it's like all right well these people aren't as inherently evil here and it's i I just think that parks are much more unique in that manner yes they they obviously are we already discussed a little bit how they're putting themselves at a distance but at the same time it's the idea of them just being genuinely nice uh on this to the extent that they are it is just like a, a fascinating wrinkle where it's like yeah you know as opposed to just being totally dismissive because these people can solve all of their life's worries with money like they just have more of a capacity for niceness that some rich some rich people are going to be assholes no matter what but you know some of them might just be like wow i got no worries in life i'm just going to be nice anyway you know to everyone that i can yeah. it doesn't take that much effort when i got so few other worries and it's just like a much more uh u- unique and different way of like depicting the one percent in a movie about a class struggle no and i think even as as quintessentially like as it is a very specifically korean movie um but I think you can map out a lot of what it says and a lot of observations about kind of class, about the 1%, about kind of the dismissive way. Basically, I, I think you can – it works very well as a way to look at out-of-touch kind of upper-class neoliberalism, I would say, of kind of people who support kind of – like politically and economically progressive issues because they, it's what they're supposed to do and it's the right thing to do. But when it gets right down to it, they don't actually understand what they're doing and they don't actually have the real, the real kind of empathetic connection. Moral to, fiber. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, yeah. No, I, I, it, it works as a very kind of universal movie, even though it's based in this very, like specific context. But what, how, how about it from the perspective of the, of the, of the lower class though? Cause yeah. I mean that I, I, I feel like we kind of, we covered it from one end, but at the other end, it's like, you know, uh, I, I, again, I, I agree. I like that these people aren't just uh, portrayed as total heroes and it is interesting to think about uh, what line, uh, how, how, to what point are we going to be, uh, are we going to empathize with them? Cause you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with them scamming the rich lady sure. into, I don't have a problem with them scamming the rich lady into hiring their daughter as an art teacher, but you know, maybe causing someone else to have multiple allergic reactions is, is another step too far, but at the same time, uh, they they got to find a way to make a living and uh, folding pizza boxes uh, isn't going to cut it. And it's, it's interesting to seeing them like uh, make those moves in. uh, And we haven't even gotten to the big turning point of this movie where there, you you see a whole other part of it where there's a group of people that really can't solve their problems with money. And it's in fact, it's kind of the opposite, but yeah, no, there's, there's one moment in like that whole sequence that is one of the single most brilliant just kind of one of the single most brilliant moments I've seen on screen in a very long time. Um, and I, we can, we can get to that once we actually kind of just like get to that, but as, as a lead in something that I think the movie does really well, and that I think kind of connects to, to what you're saying about like the way it kind of portrays like the Kim family is what the movie does with like occupancy of physical spaces and the ownership of physical spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of highlights Like, basically, it what it means to kind of be in a house, to, to think of the house as a place you have some sort of connection to, to aspire towards it, and what it means to actually own it are two very different things. And, I mean, kind of— Are we supposed to think the—is that a space that the Kims rent where their home is, or, or do they own that? Does that distinction even matter? Because, I mean, we haven't—I mean, we really—that's a massive part of this movie. I haven't really talked about the set design, but, I mean, no. obviously the house is its own really cool set that they built just for this movie. But, I mean, that, that home— Well, that you know, have, actually both both locations were sets. Right. Apparently, apparently they, that whole entire block that the Kims live on was a set, which is kind of incredible, which I saw somewhere they somehow built in a water tank. I don't even know what that means, but that's largely how they were able to— film that flooding sequence yeah but um and well, i mean it needed to be built in a specific way just to kind of get the look of like the specific way it floods which isn't just kind of the natural way a street would would look when this kind of torrential downpour happens so yeah so but like all oh, that's really cool I, I i don't know if they own that space or not but i i like where you were going with that where i mean just even that opening sequence of the movie and, and just that bathroom specifically and just the way that the, the way that is utilized and how they have to squat up there to get wi-fi and all that it, it i mean it, it i don't know it all kind of builds 
uh, towards uh, their towards what their attitudes ultimately end up being towards that house and the way the Kims talk about that house and how they and one day would want to own it or how 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 just how they're kind of taking it over when they have their little drunken party. But, you know, I think it's just like a, that's got to be kind of building up in the back of their mind. Like we have to live like this. And there's obviously just kind of a, a building resentment throughout the movie from these people that are of the lower socioeconomic class and their homes and the, their living conditions and the pride they can take or, or lack of pride they can take in it. I think all factors into that. Well, so it's something to think about is in the Kim home, there really isn't any aspect of the house that's decorative. Every basically every aspect of their home is a necessity. It's a necessity for life. It's basically what they need not to kind of be happy and to feel some sort of contentment in where they live. It's just every aspect of, of their home kind of connects to survival and getting through the day. Whereas the the park house, it's decorative, it's beautiful, it's spacious, it's comfortable. Um there is a pleasure in, in the house. And so when, when they kind of have their, their drunken party there later, that's kind of – that's something we don't really see in terms of the way they kind of occupied the space of their previous of, – of like their actual home. Right. Like they're able to kind of find pleasure in the space they're living in at this point, which I think is kind of a very interesting distinction. And kind of the further wrinkle of that is the way that kind of the, the space of the house exists through the housekeeper. And something to think about that's kind of an interesting thought to have in your head before you kind of watch the movie is what does it mean to be a housekeeper or a maid in a home who basically has full access to the house often when the family is not there, who spends a large portion of the day there, who on some level kind of has to kind of feel on some like feel like they kind of live in this place, but they don't actually live in it. They own it, and they may understand it in certain ways that the people who actually own the house don't, but it's not actually theirs. Um, and we see that later on when the original housekeeper interrupts kind of the, the, the Kim's drunken party, and we're introduced to this kind of other layer of the house, the other layer of this physical space that we just didn't even realize existed, that the family who lives there didn't even realize existed, this kind of— Which in and of itself sub- is its own interesting metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, they no, it's, there. It's, yeah, no, and that's the thing. I mean, they they live in this place, they own it, but do they really understand it? Do they really? What what is, is there a distinction between possessing a place and like possessing a, a place like a physical place and really understanding it? And so when the the, the maid interrupts the party and kind of we're introduced to this like sub basement bunker and her husband who has basically been squatting there for years um that's that's the moment in the movie that kind of things took a turn in a way that i really loved like i i was i was in already but everything from that moment on was explosive in a way that the rest of the movie hadn't even prepared me for what was the genius moment that might be the best moment you've seen in a movie this year when the like the the husband of the park family comes home and as he's walking up the stairs, the the housekeeper's husband assumes his position in front of the light switches and with his head bows down, activating the like the motion sensor right. to turn the lights on as he's singing praises to to the master for allowing him to, to exist there. And there is just something so brilliant about this man, who, like in a basement who hasn't even seen like sunlight for years praising praising the master for allowing him to live in this place as he like with his body like goes out of his way to like turn on the lights in a way that the master doesn't even like realize yeah, that's, he's that's, doing that's a funny touch that there's a couple it, moments a, like that throughout the movie where it's like yeah these aren't automatic <laughs> lights but these people just assume they are yeah it's like we're rich there's, so there's i'm sure our house has automatic lights there's there's a disregard to like how things actually work um, because they, they don't have to know yeah. for all they know, they, they walk up the stairs, the lights turn on. Mm-hmm. That's really all that matters. That's cool. Yeah. 
does it like they, they don't even have to think about, hey, you know, are there sensors? Is there someone who's turning them on? Because it's not even a concern for them. They don't have to think about by the, it. By the same token, what I, also what I was getting at, when it, just the idea of them not knowing that bottom layer is there. It's like the idea that, be, you know, there's obviously been a lot of talk in our country about like the tax rates for like the super rich. And yeah. there's a certain idea where it's like you can like not like they can there's at a certain point like you can have something taken away a certain amount of money and it's not going to change your lifestyle at all. You can like not utilize a part of your house and not even know a part of your house exists, and you're none for the wiser. Like your your life is none worse off, even if you are not making use of like a fifth of your square footage or something like that. Which is it's yeah. just it's just a funny commentary that like these rich, of course, these rich people don't even know that like they have a massive winger of their house they don't even know about. Yeah, there, there's another kind of moment that I, I thought was kind of pretty brilliant. Um, and so something I was talking about before is kind of like the kind of the, the way the way the movie kind of looks at kind of people in the upper class who are out of touch mm-hmm. and who kind of basically act kind and act progressive because they think it's the thing they're supposed to do. But at, like the core of who they are, they don't actually embody this. Mm-hmm. When the, the park husband and wife kind of have their, I guess, not sex, but mutual masturbation section mm-hmm. session on, on the couch... And the husband finds out that the wife is wearing the cheap panties, basically the, the, the Kim daughter's panties. The way they kind of basically fetishize the, the grunginess of poverty. Like it basically exists just to kind of like they're turned on by how kind of depraved the, the notion of her kind of having something lower class on her is. Hmm. It, it was just a really kind of savage, biting moment. And in a movie that has a lot of savage biting moments, but that's one that really stood out to me. Yeah, I, I'll use that as a jumping off point just to ask you about some more of the actual uh, filmmaking within this movie. Yeah. Uh, you can probably speak a lot more to, to blocking and the set design and the way stuff is and all that. But, I mean, uh, I, I'm just thinking about that moment right there. It's like I don't even know what goes into like making a scene that tense where like none of your characters are even like barely moving at all. Like just the them – somehow being under that coffee table is like one of the most essential moments of a movie I've seen this year. Yeah. I mean, I think there's generally a mistake that's really up the stakes to really kind of heighten the danger, heighten the tension. You have to go big and that's a total mistake. And it's something that like the kind of the history of kind of suspense and the history of kind of like the thriller genre in general, it doesn't really bear out. Um, You can create tension from a very, seemingly low stakes like set piece it's two people having sex on a couch as a family lies underneath a table in front of them and it's one of the tensest most uncomfortable moments of of the year um and it's 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 editing it's sound design it's performance because you need the the looks of fear and discomfort on the family's face to kind of really understand kind of what's at stake but it's yeah, it's it is a brilliant piece of set design. And then if you get and, all and if you get all of that other stuff right, that allows something as small as like a text message to like send a shiver down your spine. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it was a really brilliantly constructed scene. A lot of moments in the movie that just in terms of like pure construction are just so brilliantly imagined. Like I would say the one that really kind of like stood out to me mm-hmm. was when the Park family comes home and the Kim family basically fighting to kind of maintain this veneer of normality as they're struggling with the housekeeper, as they're attempting to kind of clean up, as they're attempting to kind of keep the the parks from noticing kind of the state the house is in. I, like, again, none of these are big, massive, like seemingly uh, tough to pull off moments but the way they're done the precision that they're executed with it just makes the tension stand out so much more um and that that also goes back to the thing the point you made earlier about uh them just being very uh casually dismissive of the parks being very casually dismissive of the kims and uh just derisive in some ways but like the way for the most part the park mother is like she keeps that veneer of kindness up pretty pretty effectively throughout most of the movie but she because they've had this long day and they've been camping she's probably at wit's end and she's actually pretty nasty in the way she does talk to the kim mother at that point and just telling her you need to get this meal made right now in five minutes it yeah better, it better be the, done the, the assumption that just kind she of has nothing else to do 
Yeah. And is that, but also I think that there's another interesting little detail that I, I didn't pick up until I heard Bong get interviewed about it, but the, she tells him, it's, I guess that, I forgot what that meal is called. It's something Don or it's, it's R- some kind Ram of Don. Ram Don. She tells him to add sirloin on it, which isn't like a common part of that meal, but it's just like a very rich people thing that they're adding yeah. onto it. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's, it, he, he talks about that in the Q and A I went yeah. to too, um, how basically the, the, the notion of rix, mixing ramen and udon, it was, it, it was just kind of a, a thing that he put in there mm-hmm. that has now actually become a fad in Korea. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's apparently kind of blew up over social media and kind of people like making Ramdan is like a, a thing now. It's, mm-hmm. it's a South Korean meme at this point. But the, he put sirloin in there because it is this – it's this kind of signifier of upper class mm-hmm. to kind of basically class up this entirely low – like finger quotes low class meal. Um, and it doesn't actually belong there. You don't need to put sirloin in there, but the notion of just kind of throwing something expensive in there to kind of turn it into something like worthy of, of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was, it was pretty clever. Well, what, and just staying in that little portion of the movie right there, another, uh, interesting thing as far as being able to create a lot of tension out of like a small moment one thing i don't i don't want i don't want to say it was like a, a big issue for me because i had i didn't have any big issues with this movie but well i i did like how just how uh, as connie artist as the being the connoisseur that they were i thought the the kims were very smart and very effective and uh, efficient and how they operated up until that point of the movie and uh, I was like, huh, I don't really know. I guess they were drunk, and it made sense that they would get drunk. But it's such a, such a key plot point in terms on people falling over each other on the stairs, which I'm like, all right, that was like a really dumb thing you guys did, but it changes everything. So I, the point, I was like, I don't know if I'd buy that these people would do something that dumb, but they are drunk, and I guess I, I'm not going to really get hung up on that. But then it's like just the consequences of everything that that means, where it's like if they just hadn't fallen down the stairs, then – they would have been in the clear, basically, probably. Like then, the housekeeper sure. probably would have just left, and they would have just. I mean, they they would have just. I mean, they, I guess they could have kept their secret. They could not have, but they would have been fine. But it's just everything that like is now processing. Just as those people are lying on the ground. I mean, oftentimes maybe the end of an accident, people are just kind of recovering. But just the them talking to each other and her filming them, like that in and of itself was just like such a one of the most impactful, meaningful. Uh, consequential moments of the movie and i i was just like oh man like i i don't know if i'd buy these people were this dumb but like holy crap like this whole movie has just been flipped up on its head well something to think about is i mean up until that point in the movie we think of them as these kind of almost like genius level operators right right. and now it's like oh maybe they aren't really that they're but they're, they're really not and like we see one of the moments kind of bong talked about as kind of the most important for him as a filmmaker and that i think really stood out to me too is after the the Kim family home is flooded and the father and his children are kind of taking shelter, he, he's asked about the plan. And it basically comes out that this kind of mastermind level thinker, as we've come to think of him, doesn't have a plan. Um, that he's on some level just kind of making it up as it goes along. That like there there isn't necessarily a luxury to to have a plan. You just have to, when, when an opportunity comes your way, you have to take it. And kind of to that note, there was another thing that really stood out to me about the, the them falling down the stairs in that sequence that you're talking about, which is as soon as the housekeeper has power, how does she act? How does she, she's act? very opportunistic too. She probably, no, but it's not, it's, it's not just kind of that she's opportunistic. What does, how does she treat the, the Kim family? Oh, yeah. She, like, treats them like slaves. She treats them like slaves. She treats them like furniture. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of gets to the larger kind of notion of kind of class itself being the oppressive force rather than a particular class being the oppressive force. As soon as someone has power, they take it. Um, As soon as the roles have been flipped in some way, people basically assume the position of what their class entails. Yeah, doesn't at one point doesn't the Kim mom say at one point something along the lines of, "Well, if I had that much money, I'd just be nice to everyone all the time." It's like, how do you know that? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, again, it's kind of the it's it's the aspirational fantasy of if if I had this power, everything would be perfect. But you know, I would be perfect. I would be better at using it than whoever has it. But there is something innately about power as it kind of functions within this larger class structure that is a corrupting dehumanizing force 
and I, I was just really excited by how clever the movie was yeah one more uh, thing on that also though i just the way in which those people yield power wield power uh, the re- whole reason the housekeeper's husband's even in there in the first place is because of the tactics some of those people use i mean yeah that i'm sure i mean i guess loan sharks are kind of a thing here but i, I we get the feeling that they're a whole other animal in south korea and that they would cause someone to have to go live like that and that's like i mean it's really a, a small detail in the grand scheme of the film but it is kind of telling and just fits in with the rest of the themes you were just mentioning yeah, no, I mean, like I said, it's a very particularly Korean movie, and it's it, it applies to a, an American context, to kind of a global context very well, but the particulars of kind of who these people are, the society they live in, it is very specifically Korean. You were going to make and, a point about the movie being clever before I cut you off? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just really, there, there are so many of these moments that kind of paint to a larger portrait of, of class structure without kind of it didactically spelling out like, this is why class is bad. This is why people in the upper class are bad. This is why blah, blah, blah. It's, it's just, it's a portrait rather well, than... Regarding, and, regarding that, uh, did this, did the, you mean, I'd say there are three pretty uh, notable staircases in this movie. Uh, yeah. Did that, did you take anything from that? I mean, there's oh, absolutely. Like, so, I mean... Uh, this, so the staircase as a visual metaphor is something that has a pretty long, like, history in filmmaking, and... Funny enough, in Italian filmmaking, too, I'm not going to kind of go on another tangent about that, but stair- like staircases in general in this movie represent uh, class in a very specific way. Like, we see the the Kims are downstairs people. They, they specifically, they live in a sub-basement. Mm-hmm. And in, in the, the Park family home, part of what kind of marks it as this kind of mansion that it is, is that it has a second floor. And that it also has this level beneath the the bottom floor of this basement where the people who are almost castless have to live. Right. And what about the staircase where they escape where the, when they're escaping when they escape in the rain? What do you what, what what do you make of the significance of that? Which is actually one of the few places where they shot on location, from what I understand. Um, did they? I, I I thought it was entirely uh, in a set. I may be wrong. Uh, I, I heard that, that that staircase that once they escape from their house and they're running down that big staircase in the rain, that was actually shot like kind of just like in some random soul alley, like in like a a neighborhood. Like it's not. Okay. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I heard that in the interview I listened to with Bong. So most like 85 percent of the movie is like on set. But like that was on location. OK, well, I mean, I, I would say that specifically kind of. Again, just to be clear, it's not kind of this didactic visual metaphor where it's like the staircase is this. Yeah. But it points to the, kind of this larger issue of the impossibility of kind of striving, like the, the the need to climb and the need to climb up. And it's something that I actually think connects pretty well to the ending of the movie, um, where the son, after basically coming out of his coma and finding out the, his sister is dead and his father is basically living in this basement, he needs to climb. And the end of this movie is, I think, something that rings pretty true uh, across kind of national lines is this feeling for, like, the need to climb up the class line to, like, the class ladder to on some some level free his parents, to on some level uh, make good. He will get to the point, he will make enough money that he can buy this home that his father is buried in, that he he'll buy enough to own a home and to kind of almost free the legacy of his, of his parents. So they can be, the family can, can be healed. Yeah. It's really, it's, I think it's just a really relatable idea. And I think that's one of the cool things about this movie is that, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that you would, unless you're at a Bong Joon-ho Q and a, you're just not going to get because some of it is very specifically Korean. But the fact is like he, he's good enough. He, he's been smart enough in the way he's structured this entire story that like, a lot of these themes are universal and they're, they're going to connect with audiences all over the world. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I thought that it was, it was, it was a lot. It was sad, funny, terrifying, tragic. And it, it I just, I couldn't look away, but something, something that I wanted to talk about, and this is something that I, I wish we had a chance to ask questions at the Q and A, cause it's something I was really curious about. One of the things that really struck me, in the performances is the performances of perform. Um, because mo- a lot of the time when we're spending time with the Kim family, it's them playing other characters. Right. And that is incredibly hard to do as an actor 
to do that and not lose sight of the original character in the performance. Yeah, I'd say, I, I guess I'd say probably 70% of the movie, they're, they are acting, their characters are in character. And, but that's the thing. It never feels like, it, it never feels like Song Kang-ho playing the driver. It feels like Song Kang-ho playing the father playing the driver. Like, we never lose sight of that original character in the performance. Yeah, it's rather effortless. Uh, the one moment where you see someone, like, deliberately, like, slide into character would be, like, right before the Kim daughter goes in for the first time and she, like, goes over her backstory. And I guess it's a kind of a fun moment. I guess she, she does kind of say it in a almost a sing-songy voice, which is in the tra- that moment's in the trailer. But other than that, there, there's never, like, an, like, all right, I'm going back undercover now. It's never like that, you know? It's less pronounced. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, but I'm also just thinking kind of on, in terms of like the level of performance. Like that is just something that is very hard to do. Oh yeah, for sure. Because it's 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 on some like on some level you can't fully become your character, uh, and there is just kind of a responsibility as an actor to kind of maintain this facade, playing the facade. And it's, yeah, it, or the Kim son, like I, I I'm sure some part of him does have feelings for that girl, but like he has to like he has to like kind of probably modulate them differently at any given moment. And that's a really interesting thing to think about what that character is having to do, but also what that actor is having to do. Oh, by the way, I don't know about your audience, but there was one moment where everyone in the room just kind of audibly cringed out of discomfort. Uh, the first moment he, he kisses the, the girl he's tutoring. Oh. Which... I mean, I, I thought it was great, and it, it, it wasn't like a cringe about this. It's a terrible movie, but it was just such a beautifully uncomfortable, awkward moment. Yeah, I, I, didn't feel that with, I didn't feel that with my audience, but again, I'm in South Florida, so it was basically like me and a bunch of white people over the age of 65, so who knows how many of them were even awake. Wait, does that mean kind of in Florida, uh, hooking up with teenage girls is more of a thing? No, it just means that wow, like, Florida, man. Okay. I mean, I, I, I guess I can't actually. Uh, no, I, I, can't, I, I can't. I can't. I can't say it's not. But at the same time, half of my audience might have been asleep. No, it, it was. It was just one of those kind of really beautifully awkward. Honestly, a lot of stuff involving the the Park family daughter was just kind of beautifully awkward. Um, even even that moment where kind of the like we hear that like her original tutor is like saving her. For, for when uh, she graduates high school, it's it's. Yeah, there, there's I, a lot. I, I think I think the movie has an understanding of like that's messed up, and it's yeah. like you can you can still remove yourself from that and be like, all right, this is kind of absurd, and take it at that. There there is kind of this notion across the movie of people using and possessing each other, and I think that is just enough. That is another example of that. But yeah, I. Yeah, I know. I just I, I really I I love Parasite a lot. I. Honestly, liked it a lot more than I expected to. Um, I wasn't too hot on Okja. Oh uh, yeah, it's probably the the the, le- the worst of his movies I've seen. And I mean, just knowing knowing that he kind of was, I guess, returning to the well in terms of kind of thematic material of dealing kind of fairly explicitly with with class. I was worried that he had kind of uh, bled the well dry, um, and that as much as I like Snowpiercer. There, I was I was worried about diminishing returns um, following Okja, but I I was really blown away. Yeah. And just technically speaking, it it was just such a beautifully precise but free flowing movie. Like yeah. it was clear, it was clear how well everything was planned out, but the the camera movement never felt stilted or overly stiff. Yeah, we didn't like talk whole, a lot. Of, we didn't talk a lot about the technical aspects of it, but I do want to give you a chance to share any uh, lingering thoughts you have on that. Because I mean, but whether it be the set or the way he moves the camera, it, it feels like he's totally in control. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that really kind of blew me away technically was the way he uses the camera to uncover the secrets of the physical spaces the characters inhabit. Um, like part of what makes that whole the revelation of the sub basement feel so uncomfortable is the way the camera is navigating it almost like it's the camera is discovering it for the first time along with the characters. Right. And it basically kind of follow Like we follow the camera as it kind of moves through these kind of maze like hallways. And it just makes that entire scene, this uncomfortable revelation where we don't know what we're uncovering. We know there's this kind of secret location that we like, 
We don't know if it's something that the parks have been keeping from the Kims. We don't know if it's something that the parks themselves don't know about. All we know is our understanding of this physical space was totally wrong and that there are secrets lying underneath the ground that we've kind of come to expect is fairly fixed up to this point. And I I just thought the camera, the camera work overall was pretty incredible. Not, it it doesn't have, the the movie doesn't have a necessarily obvious kind of style. Uh, It's not especially stylized, but just the, the camera movement alone is so precise. Like Bong Joon-ho is clearly someone who plans out everything incredibly well on and incredibly precisely. And the fact that he, he does that well without kind of making the characters feel stiff or kind of too inhuman is is really impressive. Yeah, just throughout that movie, you get a very. I, I'm always I always give a movie points if I can if I feel like. After I've seen it, I could like t- describe that space well, just re- right, right, right back to you. If I know where everything is in that house, I mean, I, I, I it's one thing I think. Uh, I, I think of it a lot when I think of like Alfred Hitchcock movies that I've seen, where I, I feel like he's really good at that in certain movies, and I, me having like just a good sense of what that space is, and it it, ju- it just kind of really helps you later in the movie, where he sets it so well up in those early scenes, where there's nothing particularly exciting or uh suspenseful happening yet you're still it's still i mean again i'm totally engaged in this movie the whole time but even in just the opening scenes where the kim son's at the house for the first time you you know where those stairs are he's having to go up there to meet the girl for the first time and you're but you're in the kitchen too and you see the living room from the kitchen and you just have such a good space idea of where everything is that as you're following the camera throughout the rest of the movie like you're not having to get your bearings at all and i think that actually really helps you be able to take everything in no, there's a really impressive sense of spatial geography. Mm-hmm. It's something that actually a very different filmmaker, I think, is very good at, but George Miller. Um, like, one of the things that I think makes George Miller action as recognizable and impressive as it is, is we have a very clear sense of where everything is in relation to everything else. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, I mean, Parasite is a very different movie than Mad Max Fury Road, but the sense of spatial geography is just as accomplish as it's just as impressively mapped out in both um i i would say though that one of the distinctions between uh bong joon ho and hitchcock is hitchcock they, they have a similar sense of precision but there's a sense in bong joon ho's films that there is something uncontrolled lurking beneath the surface that there is something waiting to burst out something something under the floorboards. Whereas in a Hitchcock film, we feel like he's, there is a master pulling the strings. And, and that's, it's something that, that yeah. there, 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 there's something to be said for both approaches. And this isn't me trying to shit on Hitchcock, obviously, but it's, it's, it's a distinction that I think is worth making. And it's something that I respect a lot about, uh, about Bong Joon-ho's films. Um, and no. yeah, I, no, no, go ahead. No, I, I didn't have anything else that I was just going to say. I, I, I agree, and that doesn't make Hitchcock movies any any less thrilling or anything. It's just like I, I, I know Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant's going to have to go through a bunch of stuff, and it's going to be really exciting to watch, and they're going to figure it out at the end, and I'm going to enjoy the ride. But I, I, I don't think it's going to be such a smooth ride when I'm watching a Bong Joon-ho movie because something could come up from the water or come up from the floorboards, and then you don't even know what's going on. And I thought it was a pretty apt way that you put it. Oh, yeah, no, I, I don't mean kind of even like a, a literal scare or a literal thing jumping up. I mean, just in terms of th- it feels like there's in, in his films, there's a mix of, of kind of that controlled element with something much more impulsive and just uncontrollable on um, like there. There is a monster uh, just lurking somewhere that like is that it's kind of creating this discomfort for the viewer. And yeah, no, I, uh, I, I was impressed just kind of by everyone's work in the movie. Um, definitely. I, I, before we, before I ask you a couple final wrap up questions about this movie's overall reception, I, did you have anything you wanted to add as far as how it compared to like burning or shoplifters? I can't remember if you did, because I, I, I think a lot of that can go unsaid and people can kind of figure that out for themselves. It, it is just kind of funny that those have, I think there's a lot of parallels and those came out pretty recently, but I, I couldn't remember if you had any other specific points you wanted to add on to that other than kind of the obvious uh, similarities that these movies have, even if they are still all distinctly pretty different. 
Well, with uh, burning, I would I would say the main takeaway I have is there's something in the water in South Korea, because I mean there there are just a a lot of very imp- like really impressive filmmakers working in South Korea right now. I mean, outside of Bong Joon Ho and Lee Chang Dong, we have Kim Ki Duk, Park Chan Wook, Kim Ji Woon. Like there there are just some really really incredible, ambitious, interesting film coming out of South Korea right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and funny enough, no South Korean film has ever actually, I believe, been nominated for Best Foreign Film. Yeah, I know. It's insane. Um, which is so completely disproportionate, like out of touch with kind of how amazing and influential they've been in kind of the world of like international well, cinema. That, that, was the, that was the only other question I was actually going to ask you is like, do, um, do, do you think that drought ends? I think it has to. Uh, for, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, people Parasite think this might, is, people think it might have a chance to get best picture nomination. Yeah, so there which, should, there should I mean, be there should be riots if it doesn't get a best forward film nomination. Yeah. You know? Not only is this kind of I would say a favorite to get a nomination, I think right now it's probably the favorite to win best foreign film. Yeah. Um God, I can't believe Burning didn't get nominated change. last year. That was insane. I, when we did the podcast last year, that we we that Oscar nominations are still like a month from happening. So, but like I, I, so we never actually talked about that. And yeah, I no, I, I it. it's, it's insane that, that, that one hurt. Yeah. There, there were a lot of things about the Oscars last year that hurt, but that one hurt. It was a pretty stacked um, year in foreign film last year, but that, that, that's still yeah. it, there still should have been room for it. But yeah, I mean, but no, I, I definitely think the drought ends this year. I mean, I, I think it could very it's, it's a weird enough year in terms of the Oscars that I could actually see it getting a, a Best Picture nomination. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to win. I am always skeptical of the possibility of kind of a foreign language film winning Best Picture of the Oscars. It has never happened. Right. As you should be. And people thought it might happen for Roma, but it didn't. Yeah, and that's if if if, Elf, if like Alfonso Cuarón can't do it, then it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Right. I mean, uh, like that movie had got, did so well at, in other categories last year, and just overall nominations, you couldn't really chalk it not winning Best Picture up to a Netflix bias. I mean, maybe maybe that was there, but like had enough else going for it that it's like who, who knows. So it's like, but if that one couldn't get it done, then you know. No, I mean the Academy's changing. I hope it happens eventually, but I, I as much as I love Parasite. Um, I think I have it as my like number three or four for the year right now. I don't think it's it's going to win Best Picture. I think it could get a nomination. I think it will probably win Best Foreign Film. Yeah. Um, and I would love to see it kind of pick up some nominations, hopefully some wins in other categories. Yeah, it should show up in like production design for sure, right? Oh, well, I mean, outside of technical categories, like yeah. if if we do get, uh, it'd uh, be awesome if Bong got nominated. I mean, they nominated. It would be awesome if. Bong they nominated Pablo Pavlikasi last year, and that, I mean, I like Cold War, but that was it was a way smaller movie, you know. This yeah, oh, like I, a hit. I loved Cold War. I thought I, I Cold War was one of my favorites last year. Yeah, but in terms of like likely Oscar movies, I think Parasite has way more going for it. Um, so I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for it to get uh, nominations in some major categories. Yeah, we'll see. And honestly, the Oscar race. I have no idea how it's looking at this point. It is, again, a very weird year, but we'll see. Yeah. All right. Uh, and, and, so the, and, the, sorry, yeah, the, the one thing that like I, you kind of brought up earlier that I didn't have a chance to, to speak to yeah. is the similarities between this and Shoplifters. Oh, right, right, right. I do think it's interesting that two years in a row, the winner of the Palme d'Or was an, an East Asian film that both deals with class structure in a very interesting way and deals with kind of the notion of the family, both real and constructed in a very interesting way. I forgot that shoplifters won the Palm door last year. Cause I was going to ask you like, when's the last yeah. time a Palm door winner didn't get a best picture nomination? It's like, Oh, okay. It happened last year, but still. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it happens pretty often to be yeah. honest, but yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, I thought that that was kind of interesting to see, especially since, um, I think some of the most interesting movies that deal with kind of, class issues are coming out of Asia and are more broadly speaking, come out, coming out of places that aren't America. And I think in general, Hollywood kind of has a blind spot in terms of how to effectively portray with and deal with those issues, because I don't think the structure of Hollywood as, as an entity is really prepared to deal with the role it plays in actually propping up capitalism and propping up kind of class class structures. Right. And so you get a lot of movies that kind of dismissively and patronizingly like peripherally address those issues, but I think like the, the movies that most 
incisively critique it, like critique them and most and and paint the most clear and accurate portraits of, of the way class structure operates and the way capitalism operates are movies made outside of basically the American specifically like studio Hollywood film industry. Yeah, like, I'd say a couple of my favorite movies of their respective years from the last few years were Lady Bird and Moonlight, and those have those deal with class in certain ways, but maybe not as directly as some of these Asian films you're talking about, and I don't know if there's any American films that, like, tackle it head-on in those ways, like you're saying, that are as good no, as... No, I mean, I, look, I like Lady Bird, but it, it really does not even attempt to kind of deal with the, the the structural issues on the same in the same way that yeah it's, uh, it's, it's on the micro level for sure but you know I'm just saying like good movies they have streaks of that in them but it's not necessarily their main priority sure um, I mean I think the the one American movie of the past few years that I think does feel radical in that way and does at least attempt to to tackle them would be sorry to bother you hmm. um, yeah how much it's, like it, the argument of how much succeeds is a whole different story. I think that is the one recentish American movie that at least feels ambitious in the way it attacks issues of kind of class structure and issues of kind of capital, like basically capitalism as it operates on a much more structural level. That's that's the one that does jump to mind. But agree, yeah. examples like that are pretty few and far between in, in American cinema right now. I was actually talking with a friend right now who also really loved Parasite, who basically just feels like it is further proof to his argument that kind of there is a lack of really radical thinking in American cinema right now. And I don't fully agree with that, but you know, you don't see too many movies like Parasite getting made in the U S right. And, but yeah, that's, that's mainly kind of the the connection I would make there. Do you have any other final thoughts before we sign off? You know, I think we pretty much covered a, a, a lot of my thoughts about the movie. Like I said, it was it was fantastic. It was at times incredibly uncomfortable, but I, I really couldn't recommend it highly enough. It lives up to the hype. I think it, it, it's one of the most justified winners of the Palme d'Or in the 21st century so far. Um, it may be... It's it's minimum in my top three. It may be my favorite palm winner of of, of the century. But yeah, I, I was just blown away. I thought it was fantastic. I really can't recommend it highly enough. Um, but I really do, I mean it's it's kind of a no longer re- a relevant thing to say at this point because they've listened to the podcast where we've like spoiled all of it. Yeah, it really does help to to know as little as possible going in. Right. Well, I, I will say that's what I, that my last point was going to be. Again, I, I I really love the movie too, and I don't I don't think anyone that's still listening hasn't seen it. But I would just say, I, I, I mean, yeah. It, there's if you're going to recommend it to someone, don't yeah. have them listen to this podcast first. Fair enough, and don't just tell them not to read a t- ton at all if they if they can. Tell, avoid tell it. them to listen to it after. Yeah, exactly for sure. But yeah, just tell. I, I would just say recommend it to a friend though. That was what I was going to say. It's like even if you have a friend that's just like typically averse to foreign movies, and I, I would say like encourage them to uh even if there shouldn't be that kind of implicit foreign movie bias that maybe some people do have just let them know that like hey this is like uh this is not what you probably think of when you think of a foreign movie in your head there's going to be enough they're able to connect to exactly i i just i I don't know i think someone might think of a foreign movie and they might think of something uh, i don't know like maybe like a period piece that is black and white like cold war or something like that again i like that movie but maybe that's what they're thinking of when they think of a foreign movie more so than something like parasite act which is actually something that's like way different from what they think about when they your more casual moving going friends typically think of a foreign movie and i would just encourage them to be like hey yeah yeah you might have to read some subtitles but look there's going to be a lot of other shit there that's like really cool that you're gonna really uh connect with and i i just say i would give any friends that are typically averse to foreign films a hard sell because i mean i don't think it's gonna be hard to get someone that's a a a pretty big movie fan to go see it but you know i think the fact that it's made so it made so much money in south korea before it even got over here just shows what kind of mass appeal it really should have so i would just not be afraid about recommending this to casual moving going friends is what i would say yeah the 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 two main like object like the, the two main kind of biases a lot of audiences have against seeing foreign films is one too boring two too inaccessible Mm -hmm. without going into how justified those arguments are in general 
I think I can say pretty conclusively, Parasite is not boring, and Parasite is not inaccessible. So, agreed. Yeah, just recommend it to to anyone, whether they think it's their cup of tea or not. It's really that fantastic. Yep. Uh, Ben, anything you want to plug? Letterbox or any other thing you have to tell people about before we go? Um, yeah, I mean, my sparsely updated letterbox <laughs> is always uh, Ben Lubin on there. I think you can find it by searching The Plot is Lost, too. But the, the actually, there is a movie I would like to plug. Yeah. It's kind of getting a slow rollout around the country, but it's one I actually know a bunch of people who worked on, so would love to give it a, a shout-out. Yeah, what's that? Uh, it's a movie called Greener Grass. Okay, I've been seeing you talk uh-huh. about this, I think. Yeah, it's it's a really fantastic, inventive, absurd, kind of subversive look at suburbia and competition inside of suburbia. Um, It's unlike, it's pretty unlike anything you've seen. It's clever. It's funny. It's very strange. It is one of the most sincerely unusual things you'll see this year, but I think it's also maybe the most inventive debut of the year by far. Um, and like I said, I know a lot of people who worked on it. it. It was a work of love from the filmmakers. And if it comes to your city, I really recommend checking it out. Awesome. Uh, I don't have any movies to plug this week. I'm like way behind on my TV watching because I've been traveling all the time. So I'm barely having time to like kind of watch any under the radar movies. But so this whole podcast was my plug for Parasite. But uh, as usual, you can find me on Letterboxd at Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. Same thing on Twitter, podcast Twitter at Rewind Movie Pod. Email RewindMoviePod at gmail.com if you want to give us any feedback. Coming up next, I'm uh, we will probably have a podcast coming for you on Jojo Rabbit and maybe even last Christmas because uh, we really run the whole gamut here. So everyone uh, stay tuned for that. Thanks again to Ben for joining us and we'll see you next time.